0: Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Clavell. Thank you for joining us for this segment of the Claver Report as we discuss the judicial branch of the United States. What is it? The importance of it? Its impact? And how a case actually gets to the U.S. Supreme Court? You know, many times you'll hear and see persons saying that I'm going to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm I'm, I'm appealing my case to the highest court in the land. But can you really appeal? to the highest court of land. And if you appeal, will you be able to get a hearing? You know, the founding fathers of our country created in the U.S. Constitution provisions to create one Supreme Court. And then other courts, as the Congress saw fit. And then, of course, we have provisions for what's called legislative courts. But the judiciary branch itself, in my opinion, being a professor of law and also a licensed attorney, I believe it's the most important branch of our government because it provides the ultimate check and balance upon our laws in society. Many laws are made, whether it be statutes, acts by Congress, whether it be regulations and policies under agencies and the like. But it all must be congruent with the United States Constitution and the ultimate interpreter of those laws and public policies, based upon the Constitution, is our United States Supreme Court. With that being the case, first I want us to take a look at the history of the U.S. Supreme Court by this Fox Media clip. And actually, we'll first start with the History Channel clip, and then we'll go to Fox Media, where where we'll take a look at how a case gets to the U.S. Supreme
1: Court. Let's take a look at the History Channel branches of government in the United States, legislative, executive, and judicial. The judicial branch is made up of the Supreme Court and other federal courts whose function is to rule on all matters related to the law and the Constitution. The Supreme Court has enormous power that has continued to grow since its inception in 1789. The first version of the court had only six justices. In 1869, that number grew to nine and has remained that way ever since. Unlike the other branches of government, justices aren't elected. The president nominates Supreme Court members as well as federal courts of appeals and district court judges. The Senate then has the responsibility to vote and confirm or reject the appointment. Justices don't have term limits. They're able to serve until they die, retire, or are removed by Congress through impeachment and conviction. The constitution itself doesn't give any specific requirements for who can and cannot be a justice. In fact, federal law doesn't even require a federal judge to be an attorney. But traditionally, most of them have worked as lawyers. And when it comes to the power the Supreme Court wields, the Constitution is, again, pretty vague. Section 1 identifies the Supreme Court as a third branch of government, and it empowers the court to decide cases. That's pretty much it. Section 2 touches on jurisdiction. And Section 3 spells out regulations around treason cases. There is no mention of interpreting the constitutionality of the laws, the very thing the Supreme Court is famous for today. So how did the Supreme Court get that power? The answer is an 1803 Supreme Court case known as Marbury versus Madison. The case is a little complicated, but basically Chief Justice John Marshall ruled that the law Marbury was using to make his case was unconstitutional. Marshall's ruling established that it was the United States Supreme Court's responsibility to interpret the constitutionality of laws. And so the court's mandate of judicial review was born. And as the highest court in the country, decisions made by the Supreme Court are final. That is, unless a future Supreme Court finds that decision unconstitutional. One well-known example of this was the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 which ruled racial segregation in public schools unconstitutional. This overruled the Supreme Court's 1896 decision in Plessy v. Ferguson, which had legally protected segregation as separate but equal. When the Supreme Court makes a ruling, all other courts must follow this precedent. Unlike the president or Congress, courts only act if someone brings forward a valid case. And unlike the legislative and executive branches, the judicial branch operates outside of elections and voter input but it nonetheless has a profound effect on our daily lives by evaluating the constitutionality of laws to keep our government in check. To see how the legislative... As you can see,
0: the court system is extremely important, which is why the founding Fathers created this branch to give a check and balance against the other branches of government. We also see where the powers of the court were also inherent within the Constitution itself and really gives this particular provision the strength that is needed in order to ensure that all policies, all laws, all statutes are constitutional. Now, let's take a look at the court structure itself. Now, we know that the US Supreme Court created one Supreme Court. And from that Supreme Court, it said that other courts could be created by the provision of Congress, as Congress saw fit. And with that, we see where there is now under the federal court. Now, we're looking at the federal court. Now, keep in mind that most states have adopted the federal court system. So if you look at your state court system, you'll see it's very similar to the federal court system. But I digress. As we focus on the federal court system, you see one U.S. Supreme Court, and all decisions heard at the Supreme Court are final, unless it's deemed that that particular case, decided by that court, is unconstitutional. So, but let's take a look again at the structure. You have one Supreme Court at top, and then you have appellate courts. Appellate courts are created within what we call circuits. Within the United States itself, you have circuits where various states are encapsulated within that particular circuit. That means that any type of federal law, any type of case of federal law or federal question that starts at the district court, it then works its way up to the circuit court. After the circuit court, well, before the circuit court, you have what's called the district court, and the district court itself is the court of first instance, that's where you first file your lawsuit. And that's very key. Where do you first file your lawsuit? So in state court, that would be what we call the trial court. And it's the same thing. The trial court itself is the place in within the district court, the place where you first file your case uh, that you would like to be heard um, within the federal judiciary or the federal court system. It's very important. That you create and file your court, file your case in court properly, because after that, there's only the record of the court that's heard in the in the in the appeals court. So, case in point, I'll use the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and the District Court in order to give this example. Let's just say that there is a case that in the state of Louisiana that is filed in the middle district court of federal court of louisiana that middle district court would be in the capital city of louisiana Baton rouge so you want this case it's a federal case it's a case of federal question or federal law you file that case itself within the federal court system the trial level goes into the middle district court and it goes you file it there. Now, that particular court is is located on Florida Boulevard. I know that because that's where I started my legal career in that particular city and passed that court all the time. So the court system itself and state government is, and city government is located pretty much in the same hub. Then from there, if you win or lose, well, more specifically, if you lose, you then can appeal that case to the appellate court. The appellate court for the... Federal courts uh, for the Middle District of Louisiana is the Fifth Circuit. Within the Fifth Circuit, you have three states: you have the state of Texas, the state of Louisiana, and the state of Mississippi. That encompasses the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal headquarters or base office is in New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans, Louisiana, and it's located not too far, matter of fact, next door to the State Supreme Court of Louisiana. So if you lose a case, you can appeal it to within the district court, whether it be in Louisiana, Mississippi, or Texas. You then can appeal it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which is located in New Orleans. If you lose your case at the circuit level, then you have the right to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, keep in mind, I said the right to appeal your case to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the question becomes, after you appeal your case to the U.S. Supreme Court, will the U.S. Supreme Court hear the case? Now, keep in mind, we have 50 states within the United States. They're located in uh, circuits. All those states are broken up within circuits of of the federal court system. And each state has various district courts. In the state of Louisiana, you have what's called the Eastern District Court, the Western District Court, and the Middle District Court. So because of a state of about 4 million people in population, you have those district courts that hear federal cases. In cases of larger populations, you have more courts located in different parts of the state to hear your particular case. So you have more judges or justices to hear those cases on the federal level, on the trial level. You have more judges Uh, to hear cases on the appeal level in these various circuits in which your state is located and your district trial court. But But we only have nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court to hear this particular case. So can the U.S. Supreme Court hear every case? How hard is it to get your case to the U.S. Supreme Court? Is there a specialized practice to get to the U.S. Supreme Court? And what type of cases usually are heard at the U.S. Supreme Court and who has the power to give the order in which these cases are heard. Now, before we look at how a case gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, I want to talk about the different levels and the importance of ensuring that all evidence is entered into the trial portion of your federal case or a state case. But again, we're looking at the federal level. Only evidence submitted within the trial court of first instance, or the court of first instance, which is the trial court in federal court, will be considered on appeal. Only the evidence that is input on the record, on the record, is is seen on the, are heard on the appeal level. And keep in mind, the United States Court of Appeal is the last, the, the court of last instance, whereas the trial court district court is the uh, court of first instance. The intermediate level of the court of appeals is what we talk about when we look at circuits. There is no putting on of evidence when you appeal a case. It's only the record. That's why writing your briefs. That's why um, ensuring that evidence is on the record. is so very important without it. The court cannot consider it. So, why is this important? A lot of these high powered cases just don't happen in a vacuum. Justices are people. They live in our communities, they go to our churches, grocery stores, The kids go to schools. We know them, we go to birthday parties and the, and the like. They listen to the news, they look at it. All of that has no influence. On the record. Now, of course, an influence is a person. We're all influenced. So I don't want anyone to under be misled to say that what we hear, what we see, what we experience does not feed our beliefs and our actions or our inactions. It does. But what we hear, what we say, what we experience our actions, our inactions, and our beliefs has nothing to do with the record. The record is the record. If it's on the record, it's on the record. And it has to be considered or will be considered if it's raised on appeal. So that's the importance of the district court and the reason why the appellate court is so important in hearing these cases and eliminating any bias that may seep in. So, we went from the district court, trial court, you lose your case, you go to the intermediate appeals court, and then from there, you appeal to U.S. Supreme Court. So, let's take a look at this first Vox Media uh, clip where we take a look at how a case gets to the U.S. Supreme Court.
2: Made it seem really easy to appeal to the Supreme Court, like when this lady wanted to fight her speeding ticket. I am going to win this case. If not here, I'll appeal to a higher court. If necessary, I'll take it to the Supreme Court. Or on Gilligan's Island, when Thurston Howell is locked in a bamboo jail and he says,
0: I'll take it to the Supreme
2: Court. But even though they make it sound like a right, nobody is entitled to an appearance at the Supreme Court. That's entirely at the discretion of the justices. And they choose very carefully. Only a small number of cases get to the Supreme Court. And it's getting smaller. Roughly 8,000 cases are submitted each year, but only 80 cases are accepted. That's a 1% acceptance rate. And to get to that 1%, most cases start at the bottom. The federal court system consists of three layers, and the lowest is the district level. If you lose in a district court, you can appeal to the circuit level. Most of the United States is divided into 11 circuits, but there's a 12th for DC and a federal circuit that mostly hears patent and military cases. Above the circuit level is the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. As long as you don't count the basketball court, that's above the Supreme Court. And to get to the Supreme Court, nearly all cases require submitting something called a petition for a writ of
3: of certiorari, which is shortened usually to writ of cert.
2: A petition for the writ of cert is a written request asking the Supreme Court to hear a case. Instead of asking the court to resolve the facts of a case, which are nearly always settled in lower courts, the reasons for granting the petition concern important questions about federal law.
3: The overarching goal of the court is to make sure that federal law is the same across the country. And so by federal law, I mean the U.S. Constitution and laws passed by Congress.
2: Professor Green clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens, where he became very familiar with cert petitions. That's because the clerks review cert petitions for their justices, who then choose to grant a petition if it passes the Rule of Four, meaning that four justices want to hear the case. When the court does not grant cert, it does not imply a decision.
3: It doesn't mean that it agrees with the lower court. It doesn't mean that the individual justices agree with the lower court decision. It just means that the court has decided that this particular case is not a case where the court is going to choose to set the law for the whole country.
2: If cert is granted, a case probably falls into one of three categories describing most Supreme Court cases. The first is a case of national importance, such as when the court decided Bush v. Gore in order to help determine who had won the 2000 presidential election. Drawing on very rarely used legal powers, the Supreme Court has for the first time in American history decided to step into a legal dispute in the midst of a presidential election. A second type of case is when a lower court issues a ruling that invalidates federal law. An example is Gonzalez v. Raich, in which Angel Raich, a California woman, challenged federal drug laws after agents destroyed marijuana plants she had been consuming for medical use. On her appeal in the Ninth Circuit, judges ruled in favor of Raich, deciding that she was compliant with the state law authorizing her use of medical pot. But that ruling conflicted with federal law prohibiting marijuana use.
3: So when the Ninth Circuit said it doesn't apply, that means if you're a medical marijuana user in California, then you can use it without fear of federal prosecution. But if you are a medical marijuana user in Florida or in New York, then it's still banned under federal law.
2: By ruling on the case, justices were able to establish the authority of federal law prohibiting the use of medical marijuana.
3: In the Reich case, the Supreme Court overruled the Ninth Circuit and said that the federal drug laws can apply to local marijuana use, which means that uh, someone like Angel Reich can still be prosecuted under federal law, even though she can't be prosecuted under state law.
2: Third, the court accepts cases in order to resolve a split decision in the lower courts. This happened in the case Obergefell v. Hodges, where a Sixth Circuit ruling that banned same-sex marriage conflicted with rulings in other circuits that had upheld the right to same-sex marriage. The
3: Obergefell was someone living in Ohio who wanted to marry his same-sex partner and was not permitted to do so under Ohio law. It made, it made its way to the Sixth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit said, you have no right um, to be married uh, because you're a same-sex couple. And that created a split, a division of authority between the Sixth Circuit, which governs Ohio, and a number of other circuit courts. And so once that happened, it was fairly clear to, I think, most legal observers that the Supreme Court was likely to hear the case uh, because it meant that The federal law, the federal constitution in this case, applied differently in Ohio than it would in Pennsylvania, for example.
2: By ruling in favor of Obergefell, the court resolved the circuit split and made same-sex marriage a right nationwide. But these three categories are just a framework for understanding why the court might select a case. They are not rules. Ultimately, which cases get to the court depends on the decisions of individuals, the sitting justices of the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: So as you see, it's extremely hard to get to the U.S. Supreme Court to get your case heard. Over 8,000 cases, over 8,000 cases are appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court every year. At the height of it, they listened to, from recent history, they chose a little bit under 200 cases. I want to say the number was around 188. But the with recent history, They've chosen less than 100 cases to hear That means you have less than 1% of 1% chance of getting your case heard in the U.S. Supreme Court. That's 94 district courts within the United States of America, 94, where persons file cases in federal court all across this country. And they're able to appeal it to 11 circuit courts in the D.C. Circuit 12 and what's called these specialized courts, uh, courts. Where we have, we have Veterans Affairs, you have Tax Court, you have U.S. Claims Court, and the like. And you can appeal cases that are specialized to those specific courts. And then, if you lose there, you could then appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Eight thousand cases over that amount, but in recent history, less than one hundred have been heard. So, what the three reasons why the U.S. Supreme Court will hear those particular your case? A case of national importance, a case of question of federal law that has a monumental impact upon society, especially at that time, because timing is a very important factor in when the justices do hear cases. And then lastly, where there are split decisions amongst the appellate courts within the United States. So in looking at those examples, we find where... The Bush v. Gore case was heard. That was a case that was decided 5-4. Five, 5-4, four. Five, four, for those who remember back in 2000, the hanging chad, where persons would poke holes in their ballot, and maybe the, the, the hole or the perforated hole, or it was called the chad, wasn't out all the way. So you really couldn't, the machine couldn't read it as properly. And that Florida decided that race, but it wasn't so much Florida. It was five justices, decided Bush v. Gore. So all the appeals were kicked out. All of the court challenges were kicked out and the U.S. Supreme Court decided an the election because it was very important for the United States t- to ensure that we had a president in the proper time and that the law that was utilized to interpret that particular provision of the Constitution was utilized properly. Now, you have many scholars that will look at that particular case and say the Supreme Court may be overstepped, but they definitely have the right to do it. And they did. And we had eight years of George Bush after eight years of Bill Clinton. And all that happened during that time period during President Bush's administration. So then after that, we now take a look at the case of federal law. There are many provisions or many federal laws that persons appeal because again the only way you can appeal, you take a case to the. US Supreme Court to a, the federal court is a case of of federal question or a case of federal law federal question of fact or law that's it. Uh, it is u.s 18 USC 1331 1332 those are the Federal uh, Statutes in which you can say, I want to bring this case to the court. Now, there are other provisions around that, but primarily it leads back to question of uh, federal law, question of federal question uh, of, of fact, right? So with that being the case, if there is a federal law that's that question, then, and it has an impact on society at that time, the court were hear hearing, but there are a lot of federal questions of federal law that the Supreme Court does not hear because they feel it's not important at that particular time. And and there is a provision uh, called Buford Doctrines where the court will not hear a case because either it's not right at the time or the the question is mute or they'll, what's called punt, they'll punt the issue to the legislative side or maybe a political question that, they feel that they shouldn't really get involved in and allow the people or the political side of the branch, which is the uh, legislative side, and also the executive side, duke it out or or come to a conclusion until it comes back to the Supreme Court to decide the question of law or fact. So we see that there it's all about timing. And then lastly, we we'll take a look at the split decisions. So you have some circuits of our country, some federal circuits that have various states encompassed within that circuit that we believe are more liberal, more conservative, or more mainstream. So that means that the same law that's written on the piece of paper that's transmitted across our computer screens can be interpreted differently by different justices on various federal circuits. Think about that. Same law, differently. Interpreted differently, depending on where they are. So in in states that encompass, uh, in circuits of the Ninth Circuit that encompasses states such as the state of Washington, Oregon and California and Nevada, which are seen as be more liberal than states in the traditional South or, or in the Midwest. Can look at a provision a federal law, and say, hey, I believe this, and states such as Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, that are in the circuit, or Fifth Circuit of Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, or even the Fourth Circuit that encompasses South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, can say, hey, I see it differently. You can have an interpretation of that same law from the perspective of those justices whose... Philosophy on the law or interpretation of the law uh, is much different. So, therefore, the US Supreme Court steps in and will decide that particular case. So, we see that it's very hard to get your case to the US Supreme Court just by sheer numbers. But I want to talk about the specialized practice lastly. Now, in order to take a case, to the district court, it has to be, you have to have a trial lawyer. You have to have a lawyer that knows trial procedure, that knows how to proffer evidence, and knows how to uh, write uh, briefs, all of that. You got to have it. Without a trial lawyer to take your case to trial, then you're, um, you're not going to fare too well because it's a specialized area of law, just like with physicians. You know, you can have someone who's a ENT, uh, ear, nose and throat physician, a pediatrician, uh, someone who is a podiatrist. These are all different specialties. And if you switch them up, then they're not going to be as effective. They may know a little something, but they're not going to be as effective. So you can't have a transactional attorney or a tax attorney as a trial lawyer on an issue of federal law or federal question. It just can't, can't do it. So to be effective, you need a specialized set of skills. Then you go from the trial session, trial level, to the appeals court. Usually a trial lawyer will appeal a case or can appeal a case. I'm not going to say will, but can. But mostly if it's a federal case, you need a specialized appellate lawyer to appeal that case to the appellate court to be effective. Why is that? Because now you're looking at the record. There are no more witnesses, no more evidence. No more rules of evidence, no more uh, discussions before the judge, no more objections on the record, none of that. No voir dire, no jury pool, no jury questions, no pretrial order, none of that. Now it's the record. So you need someone who's skilled at reading the record, dissecting it, putting it in an appellate brief, which for the most part, when you're looking at an appellate brief, it is... Possibly a mini novel. (laughs) Some appellate briefs I've seen are hundreds and hundreds of pages. And these are very complex cases. Um, They're very different chapters to them. Uh, But most appellate cases are not as long, but they are very, very involved. So you need someone able to research, read and write. And then you need someone who is more professorial and convincing to argue the case on an appellate level. Why do I say professorial? Because I look at appellate court as being educated, the justices or, that are hearing your case. So I look at it as a class for them to be compelled to understand the case from your perspective. Now, being a trial lawyer, you're also being convincing, but in a different way. You're teaching, but there's a lot more theatrics that's involved, possibly. But a lot more personality as well, definitely, to convince 12 people on a jury pool to see it your way, or possibly a judge if it's a bench trial. So now that specialty to go to the U.S. Supreme Court is even more specialized because now it, you need someone, or usually is someone who has experience with the U.S. Supreme Court, either by clerking for them or working on many cases uh, that have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court on that level. So that is the Benefit of having specialized practitioners work on these various levels of the judi- judicial branch to have your case uh, uh, presented, argued, and to help you to get the desired outcome. So that's the judiciary branch in a nutshell. It's a branch that is part of the three branches of our government here in the United States. And again, in my opinion, it is the most important branch because it is the ultimate check and balance against all the laws, statutes, public policy and regulations that are created and executive orders, which do also have the power of law uh, that the president has. It's the ultimate check and balance for the people. It is, in essence, and in theory, and most times in practice, the branch of our government that's not influenced by what happens in in popular culture because they have lifetime appointments and they're free to interpret the constitution unbridled by the necessary ability to run for office or to be elected the answer to no one but the people but the constitution is the leading force and the guide for them. Thank you again for joining us for this session of the Claver Report as we look at the judicial branch of the United States government. We'll see you next time.